0: Really glad to have you all here this morning. I was, uh, let me get this right here. I was, uh, I was at dinner the, uh, the other night with a couple of, uh, of you from Amen, a couple of Amen guys. Always good to be at dinner with the Amen guys. And uh, these two guys were sharing with me where you guys were right now, and, and I knew it was coming up. And uh, let me just say, I think that uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, I would argue, are the three most difficult chapters of the entire New Testament. So these guys are talking about, you know, they're and they're feeling kind of a little bit guilty maybe, like, yeah, I'm just having a really hard time understanding what's going on, and it's just really hard to go through this. And, and I tried to encourage him. I said, no, I, you're, <laughs> you're exactly right. At uh, 6.30 in the morning to be studying, you know, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, that's, that's a tough deal, and uh, and then we actually providentially started talking about, about hunting. These two guys are hunters, right? So duck season has just ended, so a lot of y'all's wives got to see you again uh, in the last couple of weekends. Um, but they were saying, you know, turkey season is coming up, and I didn't grow up uh, a hunter at all. I grew up down in Florida. We could hunt like wild boar, but nobody wants to do that. Um, and so I didn't grow up a hunter, so it's fascinating for me to listen to you guys who love to hunt talk about duck hunting and, and all of that. The whole, the whole concept, I remember the first time somebody said that turkey hunting is the hardest thing to do. And for somebody who's never hunted, that sounds ridiculous. Because uh, I've, I've seen turkeys, and I'm feeling like it wouldn't be hard to shoot one. So again, I'm, I'm ignorant. You can tell right away, if you're a hunter, you're like, you are ignorant, Todd. So... Uh, As I was, as and anytime somebody says turkey hunting and it's coming up and it's the hunters, uh, for those of you that don't know, the hunters they get really excited when they talk about turkey hunting, which again seems a little odd to me. But that's because I've never turkey hunted before. So they're excited about you're excited about turkey hunting, uh, and as you talk about it, I ask, I'm asking because I want to understand what is it, and they'll say, well, it's just it's so difficult. Turkeys are so smart and. uh, and the guy the other night said, it's like, he goes, really, honestly, it's like the turkeys hunting you, and you've got to avoid them until you can get them. And I'm like, well, how many, how many turkeys do you, you know, do you get? Like, what's, what's they're like, I man, you're lucky. If you, if you shoot two turkeys, uh, you know, you're, you've had a great season. And they get so excited about this while they talk about how absolutely complicated it is to, uh, to shoot turkeys. And I realized right then as we were talking, I'm like, you know what? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a turkey hunt, all right? <laughs> Romans 1 through 8, that was the duck hunt, okay? And uh, you're looking at the, uh, the revelation of God as he talks about, about uh, uh, salvation, and you can see the thread going from Romans 1 through 3, talking about how all of us are guilty. And then you see in the next chapters how the justification has been provided for us, and then into Romans 8, where it talks about sanctification. And then, and that's it, that's, that, was, that was fun. And we were, we were blowing a lot of ducks out of the sky right then, right? And then you hit 9, chapter 9, which you hit last week, and all of a sudden, you know, you feel like the passage is hunting you. And that's where we are right now. Um, but let me tell you, just like a turkey hunt, this stuff is really complicated and really deep. Um, but if we do it, it's going to be really fun when we shoot the turkey, all right? So hang with me as we, uh, as we move through this passage. And last week, chapter nine, really looked at God's providence. Okay, so you're looking at this question that totally makes sense from Paul's perspective, from the hearers of Romans, as they listened as they listened to this letter read. They would have been thinking all along. But wait a second, you're naming all these, all these Old Testament passages. Paul, you're talking about uh, in, in in Romans chapter five. You're talking about Adam. You're talking uh, about about Moses, you're talking about Abraham, you're talking about all these Old Testament passages that refer to the Jewish people. And the question's going to come up, as Sandy said last week, what about them? The gospel's going out, and the reality is that there's, a, there's so many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so few Jewish people that are coming to faith. How, what, Paul, what's going on with that? They're supposed to be, God's chosen people, what's, what's happening? And so he's anticipating that question. And last week you looked at the providence of God, what God is doing. And again, what makes 9, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans so complicated is that you have Paul diving deep into the mind of God, really trying to, to, to explain these things. And he's quoting Old Testament passages and Pulling these things. In what we read this morning, there's nine different Old Testament passages that are quoted. And the way Paul quotes them isn't even the same way for the same purpose. And the whole reason it's, Paul's not trying to complicate things and, and, and make things difficult. He's actually trying to take the mind of God in regard to providence and the work of these people and our own, and trying to simplify it for us, yet, you know, it's just, it's just difficult to understand. It's a complicated thing. And uh, last week you looked at the providence of God and in, in this whole issue of the Jewish people and their belief. And this week we're going to look about the responsibility of the Jewish people. Um, in the same way that the providence of God has applied to all of us in our salvation, there's a responsibility of ourselves, our responsibility for our own condemnation that applies to us, not just the Jewish people. And as we dig through this, uh, I think when we get to the end today... I think two things are going to happen. I think one thing that's going to happen is you're going to really understand uh, together w- just how we have brought our own condemnation upon ourselves and how God's providence was our own, only rescue. And I think we're going to be really overwhelmed with gratefulness uh, in a way that, that, uh, that maybe you've never been before uh, as you think about your salvation. Let's read uh, Romans. We're going to start at verse 30 of chapter 9, and we're going to read through uh, the 21 verses of chapter 10 says this What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over a stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do you say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is, to, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will ascend to the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all of them, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on them in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Brothers, let's pray together as we dive into these words. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage, that we have it, Uh, and yet here at 6.30 in the morning to, to dive into these things this deep with places all over the Old Testament flying at us. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father, we need to understand these things. We want to understand your heart, but we are well aware of our inability to do so unless you speak to us. And so, Father, be gracious to us, and open up our eyes to see what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see here uh, in your notes, we're going to be looking at three ways that Israel failed uh, to grasp uh, what God was bringing. See, last week we saw why why there was salvation for anyone because of the providence of God. Um, But the question is, uh, did God condemn the Israelites or anybody who not, doesn't believe? Did does God condemn them to hell? Is he, is he this God who's look up there going, okay, you're to heaven, you're to hell? I think that's one of the things we miss, and we'll talk more about that when we think about the providence of God or the sovereignty of God in salvation. The reality that we see here in this chapter is that in regards to the Israelites or anybody who doesn't believe, that they bring a condemnation upon themselves. They fail themselves. And you can see here three ways that happens. First of all, Israel failed in their definition of righteousness. Israel failed in their definition of righteousness. And you see in verses 30 through 33, a righteousness by faith versus a law leading to righteousness. A righteousness by faith rather than a law leading to righteousness. Paul's going to contrast these two things. He's going to say, listen, you've got to have righteousness before God. In order to be saved, you you can't come before God uh, in your sinfulness. You have to have a righteousness. And what was happening is he's saying, I'm offering you a righteousness by faith. But they were seeking a righteousness through the law, looking at the law, looking at obedience and saying, "I, I can be right before God by obeying. And he contrasts this with the Gentiles. That's what you see in verses 30 and 31. And that's the whole point here when it comes to why, why is he bringing this up? Well, the Gentiles, uh, you know, as the gospel has gone out in the first uh, you know, 10, 20 years after Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension, overwhelmingly the, go- the Gentiles are, are coming to Christ. But the Jewish people are not. And the question is, how can that be? This, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. And so here he's contrasting what's going on with the Gentiles. And he says there in verses 30 and 33, the Gentiles are laying hold. It says they've attained uh, this, this righteousness, this faith. And that word attain there literally means violently laying a hold of it. It's like they're streaming to the gospel. But Israel, who apparently had these ways to obey, they had the Old Testament. They're not pursuing it and it's because they are pursuing it by trying to accumulate enough works in order to get to God. If I'm obedient, I'll get there. And, of course, that you've heard that talked about so many times at Amen Bible Study. That's our tendency as human beings. Uh, almost every religion you can think of is based on some aspect of work, some way that you do certain things and God is pleased with you because you do certain things. And what's going to be made over and over again, the point here. Listen, that has never been the way to God. That's never been a way to, to access. It's an impossible way to accumulate righteousness. And then he brings in in verses 32 and 33 this idea of Christ being the stumbling block. So, their point under letter A, point number two, Christ is the stumbling block. And he quotes Isaiah 28 saying, I've set in Zion a stumbling block. And this, this word stumbling block literally is what we get the word scandal from. Uh, he said, I've I've and, and the word offense is actually scandal too. He's saying, I have placed this scandal. And Christ was a scandal to the Jewish people. And the reason he was a stumbling block, imagine that the that the Jewish people are so focused on all these, I'm gonna obey. And they broke down the law to be specific, like, you know, hey, I, I have the Sabbath day, I've gotta I gotta obey the Sabbath, and the and the rabbis Said, okay, well let's what are the different ways we can obey the Sabbath? Well we can only walk, we're gonna make sure we can only walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. We're gonna make sure that we only lift a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath. They're making all these rules. They got so focused on rules, thinking, this is the way to God. I'm gonna make God pleased with me because I'm gonna be a good guy. I'm gonna be a good man. And I know I've done some bad things, but if I can outweigh them with good things, and as they're focused on that, They literally are tripping over Christ. Christ is in the way. He's a stumbling block to them. Uh, And yet, what Paul is saying here, that's the whole point. He was the foundation. This is what God laid before us. And you've been focused on these laws. You've been focused on these rules. And you've completely missed the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, comparing God's righteousness... Versus their own righteousness. God's righteousness versus their own righteousness. And he says there right away. They have a zeal without knowledge. A zeal without knowledge. And that's the way Paul was right. Paul was completely passionate. About his Jewish faith. So passionate that he put Christians to death. And he was. I mean he was a Jew of Jews. And you and I know people that are that are passionate about their religion. And we want to often say, gosh, you know, they're so sincere. They're so committed to their religion. People might even, you know, you might even be tempted to think about yourself. I'm so committed to be here on on these Thursday mornings. And certainly God finds something pleasing about me (laughs) because I'm here on Thursday mornings and we want to develop our own own righteousness. Um, The reality is, though, your zeal, your passion doesn't, <laughs> doesn't guarantee that, that you're right about these things. I've thought about this in, in light of uh, a recent movie that came out. Uh, the movie, The Big Short, which was based on the, on the book, The Big Short, about the 2007-2008 the collapse as a result of the whole real estate, bond market, uh, shenanigans, shall we say, that went on. And, uh, and as you read the story of that, as you look at what happened from you know, 2001 through the, through the crash of, of 2007, 2008. On the one hand, you have a mass of brilliant men and women who have created this subprime bond market, and they're making millions upon millions of dollars. On the other side, you have about 20 men and women who are brilliant, who are, who are betting against it, who are buying default swaps against this thing. On both sides you have brilliant and passionate men and women. You don't have idiots over here making millions of dollars in the subprime market bond market. You have, you have men and women who are graduating from the best uh, MBA schools in the country. You don't have idiots over here. Everybody in the whole thing is smart. Everybody in the whole thing is passionate. Only reality is that this giant group over here were just dead wrong. <laughs> So their passion and their intelligence did not guarantee that they were right. And that's what's happening here. The passion and the knowledge doesn't guarantee that you're right. There is a right and wrong, and you've got to figure that out. And so that's what Paul is saying in these, in these passages here. And let me just say again, we all struggle with our own righteousness. Uh, so we might look at, it's easy for us to look at uh, certain people and go, yeah, you know, that religion, they have this idea that if you have a bunch of bad works, you just got to get a bunch of good works and you kind of weigh the balance out like this. And I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You know, and we have an easy, easy time kind of uh, um, condescending to other, other religions or that idea. And yet, brothers, isn't it true? Um, we struggle with developing our own righteousness. <laughs> we have a tendency to, uh, I mean, we know we're saved by grace. And, and we know we're, know we're bad, but, but then we do some good things, and we, and we kind of we need, we, we want that to be on the ledger of like I'm acceptable to God. And when we fail, when we sin, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself instantly going, "Okay, yeah, I know that was whew, that was a disaster. I shouldn't have done. Man, well, I did this last. <laughs> I did this last night. I, uh, I, uh, I foolishly. I mean, it's just dumb. Just." because I felt like being right one time yesterday. I felt like all day uh, I just took a beating, right? So it's it's small, inconsequential, doesn't matter, any thing, conversation with my wife, and I just wanted to be right. And instead of just saying, hey, thank you, I'll take care of that, I wanted to talk about why the way she said it wasn't the right way. And again, it's just, yeah, you're laughing because you're like, that was stupid, you know? I'm like, yes, yes. I didn't, I didn't get to watch the end of the show I wanted to watch because we spent so much time talking about that that it was late. Completely dumb. But what? And, and I go to bed thinking, Todd, you're such a jerk. You're such a jerk. And then I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, I really served God today. You know, like, I'm trying to think of a way that somehow I'm not as much as a jerk as it seemed like in that moment. And I'm trying to create my own righteousness. And Paul is trying to get the point across in regards to the Jews, but it's in regard to all of us. We can't pull together our own righteousness. In fact, he's going to talk, uh, he's, you know, it's, he's talked about it before, quoting Isaiah, our righteousness, Isaiah says, our good works are filthy rags. And you'll, you'll never hear a pastor in a mixed group, you know, go ahead and explain this, but in the Hebrew, it literally means menstrual rags. Your good works are absolutely gross to God because they, when it comes to your salvation, they, they can't attain, if you're looking at your good works and you're saying this, God should be pleased with me because that, uh, that was pretty good today. It is, it is, it is gross to God. Um, or as uh, my father-in-law is a, is, a, is a Presbyterian pastor. He's now retired and, um, and uh, you know, Presbyterians—they get so worried about exactly the words you say, right? You got to say the exact right word. You can't say potluck supper because you don't believe in luck, right? So <laughs> you got to got to say pot providence supper or something like that, right? So, uh, so you know, working with teenagers all these years, um, somebody says something like, "Hey, Todd, do you want to? Can I get you some breakfast?" And I'll respond like teenagers, "No, I'm good," meaning, "No, I'm okay. I, I don't, I don't have, I don't need breakfast," right? So my father-in-law, hey, can I get you some coffee? Uh, No, Grady, I'm good. And he always says this. He's like, no, you're not. (laughs) I'm like, okay, right. I I don't need coffee. I understand I'm not good. But it is a great reminder to us, isn't it? It is a great reminder. You know, and every time I say it now, I think you're not good, Todd. There's nothing good about you. Uh, And that's me wanting to drum up my, my own righteousness in there. So then what, is, what does Paul say in regards to that as he goes on in verse 4? And this verse 4, if you're, a, if you're a Bible underliner, there's going to be about three verses you're going to underline this morning. This is one of them, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the termination of the law. I think I got that changed. I used the wrong word before. Yeah, Christ is the termination of the law. he's, he's puts an end to it. God's righteousness is Christ. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Our righteousness is our own works trying to attain something. Hey, I'm good. No, you're not. God's righteousness is Christ. And Christ terminates the law when it comes to salvation. It's just done. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it terminates our obedience to Christ. It just means when it comes to any way. To get to God. Christ is the stumbling block. Christ is the scandal. Christ is the termination. He ends it. It's done. It is finished, Christ said, on the cross. And so that's why Paul talks about in other places that when we, uh, with Christ, when it comes to his righteousness, we, we take off our old self. We take off the filthy rags. And what do we put on? We don't put on good clothes, clean clothes, obedience. We don't put on obedience We put on Christ. We put on Christ, which allows us to walk in obedience. But you and I, we've got to take off, we've got to take off not just our bad stuff, we've got to take off our good stuff. Our good works, our filthy rags, take them off. And you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I wanted to sing this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. Christ is the the termination of the law. I take off filthy rags. I put on on Christ. And uh, here's where I want to say, let's think about this in in light of God's providence that was discussed last week. And I know we have a, I love this. One of my favorite things about Amen Bible study is we have an ecumenical crowd. Um, Thank goodness we're not all Presbyterians in here. This is awesome. (laughs) I love that we got an amen there. So... uh, In in this room, all different backgrounds, and we're wrestling with the issue of providence of God. Uh, I think you've heard me confess before that that I grew up Baptist. Another confession, I'm pretty sure that all Presbyterians grew up Baptist. Um, In some way, way the Baptists affect us. Um, So I wrestled with the issue. I remember wrestling with the issue of God's providence pretty significantly. And and part of the the problem with my wrestling is I fought against it, because I fought against it. Part of my problem in fighting against it is this, it, it's, it, the words are just in the Bible. You know, I'm like, Ugh. you know, somebody says, well, you're predestined before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians. I'm like, yeah, I don't like that verse. Um, we take that out. Wrestling with this whole thing. And I think part of the wrestling is this we, we, we think that, that the providence of God means that um, He's created humanity and they're neutral. And in their neutralness, God decided, you go to heaven, you go to hell. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I don't don't think we're neutral. (laughs) I think in Adam we all sinned. That's what we know theologically. And then we know it experientially. For any of you that have ever had a kid, been around a kid... You don't have to teach a baby to disobey. You don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. We are born selfish. There's nothing neutral, there's nothing morally neutral about us as human beings. Again, if you raise kids, um, your struggle was not to teach them to disobey a little bit. You know, hey, you know what, you're just too good, and I need you to teach this thing about sin. You didn't have to do that at all. We weren't born morally neutral. We were born with an absolute bent, a drive to sin. And that's the point of this passage in Romans 10. What's going on with the Jewish people is they're condemning themselves. And any of us, including Todd Erickson, is I, especially Todd Erickson, I, I condemned myself. I was, I'm, I'm a sinner on my own. I don't, I don't need you know, it's not like God didn't have to assign me a certain direction. I was going there, I was headed in that direction. And it was only by the grace of God grabbing a hold of me and yanking me out, or as Psalm 40 says, pulling me up out of the slimy pit and putting my feet on a rock. That's the only, that's the only way I'm saved. It's not, I wouldn't have been smart enough to figure it out, I wouldn't have been broken enough over my sin. I was justifying my sin. I was figuring out ways. And you, any of you who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know this. You can look at your old life and say, there's no way I would have found Jesus on my own. Jesus had to intervene in my life. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, the condemnation is not something, God doesn't condemn you in the sense that you're neutral and he sends you that way. That's not, that's not what predestined, that's not providence of God You condemn yourselves, and that's what's happening here. The Jewish people have condemned themselves. They're pursuing, they're saying, you know what, I'm going to make you like me, God, by being really obedient to all these laws. And it's not the law that the the Ten Commandments aren't the problem. It's our ability to follow the Ten Commandments that are a problem. We can't do it. So any attempt we make to pursue our own righteousness fails. I mean, even think about this. We all want to justify certain aspects of obedience to God, but all of us in here have, a, have our own kind of moral compass, right? You have your own rules, right? <laughs> and isn't it true? Like, you can't even keep your own rules for yourself, right? <laughs> you can't even succeed at that. And it's not even the standard of God. It's just your standard. That's the way everybody is. We can't keep our own standard. Our own righteousness fails even when we make the bar really, 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 really low. And we just, we need a Savior. We condemn ourselves. And that's what's being said here. And Christ is the termination of that life. It's the, conclu- it's the end. And you know, He he is the answer. You can stop that running. And you can just fall back into the grace of God by faith. Well, the second Major thing we see in these passages in the way that Israel failed uh, is that Israel failed to see the way to salvation. Israel failed to see the way to salvation. In verses five through seven, they say, or we see, attempting to live by the commandments will not get you to Christ. Attempting to live by the commandments will not get you to Christ. Here's where things get really complicated in the passage when he starts talking about these questions and he quotes, Uh, Verse 5 through 7, he quotes, first of all, Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 30. We could have a whole nother amen just talking about how and why and what he quoted. If you're interested in that, call me up. We'll go grab coffee. We'll talk about it. I'm not going there this morning. I'm just going to tell you what Paul's uh, intent was in the midst of that. What he's trying to show here from Deuteronomy 30, and it is fascinating is not that Deuteronomy 30 talks about salvation by faith. What Deuteronomy 30 does talk about is how easily accessible God is. How easily accessible God is. So when he says there that those who say in in your heart, the righteousness is by faith, who will ascend to heaven and bring Christ down? Who will go to the abyss and bring Christ up? What he's saying is this. Listen, you're, Christ isn't far away. You don't, have to, you don't have to strive out and somehow discover Christ way out there. You don't have to dive down deep and somehow bring Christ up. This isn't a striving that you're imagining. Uh, and so he quotes Deuteronomy 30 to say, listen... There's an accessibility here that you're missing. You're missing that it's not too difficult. It's not beyond your reach. And that's the point of what was going on in Deuteronomy 30. And then he says, the obvious, letter B there, Christ is already here. Christ is already here. And he continues to quote Deuteronomy 30 when he says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's saying Christ is accessible. He's, he's, he's right here. He's easily accessible. Easily accessible, number one. I think I shared this story a couple of years ago. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite. Uh, Chuck Jacob, who many of you know, who was a pastor here a while ago. He's now a pastor in Durham, North Carolina. And I got to be with him just a couple of weeks ago. And we were recounting this story. A Dr. Stott, John Stott, who wrote the commentary that many of you use with this study, he was speaking at Fourth Presbyterian Church in uh, years and years ago. Fourth Presbyterian Church, he was there for a Bible conference all weekend in Washington, Washington D.C. And that night, Sunday night, instead of his normal lecture, they said there's going to be a question and answer time with Dr. Stott. And so the place packed out. You had, you had guys driving down from Philadelphia, from Westminster Phil- uh, uh, Seminary in Philadelphia, and people from around the D.C. area, brilliant young little burgeoning theologians, packing out Fourth Presbyterian Church there in Bethesda, Maryland. And up there on the stage, it was just Dr. Stott, a microphone, and a stool. And there are microphones out there, and people were getting up, and they're asking questions, all kinds of questions. And, uh, and the questions, you know, for most of us, it would have us to death because, you know, you got these little little theologians who want to, I don't know if they want to stump Dr. Stott or whatever. They're asking, you know, well, are you a superlapsarian or an infralapsarian? You know, and you're thinking, why, why does, that, what does that mean and why does it even matter, right? And, but Dr. Stott, probably one of the most brilliant theologians of the whole 20th century, he's just up there at ease, waxing eloquent about all those things. And then somebody gets up to a microphone. Chuck Jacob, my friend, was there. He said, Todd, somebody gets up to the microphone and says, Dr. Stott, how much do you have to believe to be saved? Place fell silent. Chuck said that Dr. Stott sat down on the stool and just sat there, looked down at the floor for, he said, probably 30 seconds. And then he stood back up and he leaned into the microphone and this is all he said. Not much, I hope. Most brilliant theologian, I think, of, or at least one of the top three of the entire 20th century in the midst of that room. How much do you have to be believe to be saved? Not much, I hope. And I know he's had to be thinking about these verses right here, verses 8 through 13. Christ is already here. He's, he's easily accessible. If you confess With your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you shall be saved. Confess with your mouth. What does that mean? That your confession, not just it's not some kind of formula. One of our problems in Western culture in the last 50, 60 years is that we've started to separate what what we confess with our mouth and what we actually do with our lives. In other cultures in the Middle East, that makes no sense at all. To say you're a Christian and to not live wholeheartedly by Christian beliefs makes no sense to Westerners. I mean, to to people in the Middle East. Makes no sense to people in Sub Saharan Africa. Doesn't make any sense. In America, somehow it makes sense. You can be a Christian and not really live by it. But what Paul is saying here is he's got the Middle Eastern, Southeast Asia mindset. Confessing with your mouth means Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my life. I'm going to let Him rule everything. Believe in your heart that historically, that there was a historical Jesus, that he lived a real life, that he died a real death, that he actually bodily rose as the ascended Lord, as the risen Lord, and then ascended into heaven. You believe that, and you say, Jesus is my Lord, that faith justifies you. And I love that he uses in verse 10, and those verses 9 and 10 can't be separated, He uses that word justification. Uh, It's it's one of my favorite words. We talked about it in Romans 5. Justification is the legal act. The legal act. It's a legal word. The legal act whereby God, on the merits of Christ, forgives you or treats you as sinless. Whereby God, on the merits of Christ, treats you as sinless. That's a powerful thing. It's just something that's there. It's illegal. It happens. It's Christ being the culmination, or excuse me, the termination of the law. It's easily accessible, one. Number two, it's equally accessible. He says in verses 11 and 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For us, that doesn't sound like a pretty dramatic statement. (laughs) For them, it was an absolutely dramatic statement. Culturally, you couldn't think of anything more different than a Jew and a Greek. So we had have to put in here anything, any concept that you could think would be totally radically different. An amen Bible study member and an ISIS member. When it comes to salvation, there's no distinction. That salvation is available for both of those men. Both of those men. by God's grace, can come to know Christ. Both of those men have to rest solely on the salvation offered by faith, resting completely on the righteousness of God. It's equally accessible. Number three, it's universally accessible. In there, Paul quotes Joel chapter 2, and he uses it like Peter used it on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter uses that same thing from Joel, from the book of Joel chapter uh, chapter 2. And he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And he refers now to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so cool. This is happening, brothers. It was happening in Paul's time when he wrote this. That the gospel was being was universally accept, accessible, and it's and it's happening all over the world right now. One of the fascinating things, like Tim Keller pointed this out, one of the fascinating things about the Christian faith is that when you look at other major uh, world religions, uh, you see them. You see them uh, kind of. On, you look at the picture of a globe. You see them congregated in certain cultures. So while while you may see uh, you know, while you may see some, some pockets of, of Muslim faith here and there, the predominant pocket of Muslim faith is going to be in a certain geographical location. The predominant pocket of the Hindu faith is going to be in a certain geographical location. But when you look at Christianity, you, you've got so many huge pockets everywhere. And of course, that would make sense. It's universally accessible. It's not a cultural religion. You can't say that Christianity is a culture-based religion because it's, it's everywhere and it's adapting to every, every culture. And of course, if, if it's true, if Christianity is true, then you're worshiping a God who actually is the creator and, and by definition, he would have to transcend all cultures. would have to have be that way. And that's what Paul is saying right here. It is, it is universally accessible. Christ is already here. Easily accessible, equally accessible, universally accessible. Well, finally, number three, Israel failed to listen. So we've seen how Israel's failed to see the way to salvation. Israel has failed in its definition of righteousness. And finally, Israel failed to listen. Verses 14 through 17 the gospel message is being proclaimed. Beautiful words here. How do they call on them who have they not believed? How will they believe in them who they've not heard? He goes on and then he quotes Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And Paul just says, hey listen, people are being preachers, proclaimers are being sent and then they're proclaiming and people are hearing and people are believing and they're calling upon the name of the Lord and they're being saved. And he's saying to the readers at this time, this is happening. It's happening everywhere. All over the Roman Empire, these things are happening. It's happening in Paul's di- time. My question to all of us at Amen this morning, I thought of it, is it happening here? Is it happening in Memphis? Is it happening because of us? So while this is a great a picture of how the gospel goes out and how the gospel was going out in Paul's time, the challenge to us this morning in Amen Bible Study is, is this Is this what we're doing? At that time, Paul was taking the gospel from where it was known to where it was not known. That's what world missions is. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is not simple. I wish it were this because I'm not much of an evangelist. I really wish evangelism was just, you know, Todd, if you just obey God today and be, you know, just be a good example, then you're being an evangelist. (laughs) No, that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism, according to this, is, is, is being sent out, taking the gospel from, taking the message of the gospel from where it is known to where it is not known. Now that might be across your street. The gospel may not be known, might not be known in the house across from you. so evangelism would be taking the gospel from where it is known in your house to where it is not known to the house across the street. Or it might be taking the gospel for where known in Memphis, Tennessee, and going to Jakarta, Indonesia, where the gospel is not known, Indonesia being the, the, the most populated uh, Muslim uh, country in the world, and taking the gospel there. But as you see here clearly, this is about being sent out and proclaiming this message. And Paul is saying, this is what's happening, and this is what uh, their Jews are hearing But look what it says in verse 18. Or excuse me, yeah, verse 18. But Israel has heard the gospel. So the question would be, maybe Israel hasn't heard. Maybe the Jewish people haven't heard the gospel. Maybe they don't. Paul says, no, they've heard. And they've heard it even going back. And he quotes the Old Testament again. They knew or they heard a righteousness by faith, not a righteousness by the law. Jews have heard, they're just not responding. And then letter C, verses 19 through 20, Israel has understood. He asks again, Paul asks the question, but maybe Israel didn't understand. And there he quotes Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 65. And what he's doing there is he's quoting both Moses and the prophets. And he shows them, hey, they knew because Moses talked about it. And they knew because the prophets talked about it. Like it's there. You can look at your Old Testaments. You read the Old Testament, and you're going to see God constantly talking about, I'm going to bring the Gentiles in. Isaiah says, my, my, my message, my, my work of salvation, it, 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 I can't, how could I possibly contain it to one nation? It's far too big for that. What I'm doing in this world, God says, cannot be contained by one nation. He's saying this in the Old Testament. It's far too big. It's it's too much of a thing to just contain it to one. And all along he's saying, I'm going to spread this out. I'm going to grab a hold of other nations. And so the Jews, certainly they understood it. So what's going on? It it reminds us of what we read in uh, Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth. They're suppressing the truth. So whether your friend, or maybe you in this room, you say, well, I I don't believe in God. And by the way, if you're in here and you don't believe in God, welcome, I'm so glad you're here. I love that. You don't believe in God, you say, well, no, actually Romans 1 says, you know God exists because you can see he's revealed himself from what's been created. You're suppressing the truth. Or... You're a religious person and, and you're saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this direction. And I know that if I obey enough and I'm a good guy, I'm going to be led into heaven. I mean, I'm, I'm so much better than, you know, 98% of the dudes in here. Which, by the way, isn't a real high bar, so don't set that. <laughs> but you know what? You're just suppressing a truth that you know because you can't even live by your own standard. And this is what the Jewish people were doing. They were just suppressing the truth. Paul says they know the truth, they've heard it, they've understood it. It's in their Old Testament scriptures. You can read through the Old Testament and you can see Christ everywhere. And as Christ has revealed himself in the Gospels, now it's opened up a light into the Old Testament that just makes it so exciting. So exciting to look at the Old Testament in light of the Gospel. But look what it says finally in verse 21. And I love that Paul ends here. I love that we get to end here. And I love it how it leads into chapter 11. Paul says this, quoting from Isaiah 65, I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Wow. Christ, uh, God says, all day long, I've held out my hands. That's grace. I, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still proclaiming the God. Why has Christ not come back yet? Because he's patient and gracious. And he wants people to come to repentance. And he's holding out his hand. Holding out his hand to whom? What does it say? To a disobedient, contrary people. To a stubborn people. He continues to hold out his hand. Brothers, as we end this morning, let me just say this. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ... You've heard today and you've understood. I plead with you on behalf of a God who is holding his hand out to you. That you do not resist him. That you do not suppress that truth. But you call upon him because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those of you in here who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... I hope you walk out of the doors this morning overwhelmed that this was you, what we just read in chapter chapter, uh, 10. This was you. This was me. And if God had not sent someone to tell you the gospel, to proclaim to you the gospel, and if he had not grabbed a hold of your heart, you would have remained in your darkness. But God has loved you so much that he sent someone to tell you about Jesus. And he opened your eyes and he saved you. And you walk out of here a free man. Not on your own righteousness. Now you take that off. When you walk out of here, put on Christ. Put on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these powerful words from Romans chapter 10. Again, Lord. These are, these are difficult things to understand your mind and your heart. But give us eyes to see. Uh, open up our eyes of our mind and our heart to, to grasp these things more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.